Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, because there you are going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, for now. I'll explain that later. And Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. And gee, guys, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, Not a whole lot going on other than, of course, the Supreme Court on Friday released uh, their opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, uh, the case of the abortion law that had been passed in Mississippi that would uh, limit abortion in Mississippi to the first uh, 15 weeks. That court case argued in front of the court in December, the opinion being handed down on Friday. And in that opinion, what is essentially a 6-3 opinion, but with uh, concurrences being filed by Chief Justice John Roberts, as well as uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas, and we'll get to all of those, uh, effectively a 6-3 opinion, but kind of a 5-1-3 opinion that overturns uh, both Roe v. Wade and Casey v. Planned Parenthood. Uh, which means that the what the court had found in seventy uh, three, I believe it's nineteen seventy three, in Roe, a constitutional right to abortion is uh, no longer what they found. That they they held essentially in Alito's opinion that Roe and uh, thus Casey, following from it, had been wrongly decided, and they are making that correction. There, if, uh, there are a whole lot of angles to discuss this from today. Uh, but let's get into it with Sam. What was your rea- What is your reaction to the court's opinion in Dobbs? Well, so many things have been said since Friday, it's difficult to know what one can say that would add anything new to the discussion, right? Well, Sam, uh, let, me, let me clarify there. So many things have been said, and almost all of them have been ridiculous. So I think we have the opportunity here to add good commentary to what people will hear about this case and not the kind of hysterical stuff that you're finding from people on Facebook. And Twitter, for that matter. So uh, a couple of things I would say. First of all, uh, I think it's very clear that even if you talk to a good number of legal uh, legal professors, uh, those who study constitutional law, particularly American constitutional law, who would describe themselves as being pro-choice, etc., I suspect that if you polled them, you would find that perhaps a majority, maybe even a significant majority, would say that Roe v. Wade was always constitutionally an extremely shaky uh, decision. Ruth Bader Ginsburg more or less made this point uh, insofar as she was obviously someone who uh, believed in the pro-choice position but recognized that Roe was uh, 
very problematic from a constitutional law standpoint. And let's not forget that Planned Parenthood versus Casey more or less conceded that point and then attempted to establish a better constitutional framing for uh, abortion as a, as a derivative of a right to privacy. But even in its case, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, again, a lot of quote-unquote, people who describe themselves as pro-choice, legal professors, uh, constitutional specialists, would also go on and say that Planned Parenthood versus Casey was itself also a very, very uh, shaky constitutional point of law. So I would say that from, uh, I think, a standpoint of good constitutional law, that what Roe, what this has effectively done, what Dobbs has actually done, is correct what was widely recognised among legal specialists, regardless of their views on the subject of abortion. It has rectified a major problem in constitutional interpretation and has established a situation whereby now the question is what different states will decide about this particular question. So it's not as if that this decision has suddenly banned uh, abortion procedures throughout the country. It hasn't. Uh, What it has done is mean that states now are the ones who will decide this. Now, there are going to be issues that flow on from this because I think many people uh, seem to be assuming that this ends the court system, the judiciary's involvement in this particular issue. And I think the answer to that is no, it has not. And the reason I say that is because there are going to be questions that emerge, uh, ranging from things like uh, the implications of the commerce clause for people traveling interstate uh, who want to have this, who want to have abortions. Uh, There's going to be, I suspect, cases brought by progressive lawyers, pro-choice people, etc., who will effectively try to use the judicial system to again uh, establish what they regard as a right to uh, this procedure throughout the country. But that will take a long time, I think, uh, and whether it actually happens, I think, is extremely questionable now. Uh, and for and So I think those are some of the broader constitutional issues that I think let's say, some of the more serious commentators on this particular ruling are actively starting to work their way through now. What Sam said kind of glibly at the beginning there is is what I want to piggyback on. But but first, very quickly, I think Sam is absolutely correct that this does not at all end the court's involvement in issues relating to abortion. You, you are going to have uh, suits stemming from whatever the legal regimes are that are going to be passed in individual states. You're certainly going to have a state that is going to attempt to ban interstate travel for the purposes of procuring an abortion. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, um, in his concurrence, like, very clearly signaled the like what <laughs> now that he is he's the new Anthony Kennedy in a way that he is the swing justice uh, and the one that you're trying to persuade in a lot of these cases, I think. And he very clearly signaled that, uh, n- n- no, the court is not going to hold that, at least for now, um, with this current construction, the court is not going to hold that. Um, 
But this is what made John Roberts' concurrence make so much less sense to me in that on one hand, I understand the point that he's making, that in his opinion, the court could have upheld the Mississippi law without having to revisit and address Roe and Casey. And that, you know, take the kind of the, the Burkean minimalist approach, right? You know, they're only being asked about the, the that one question in front of them. They don't have to revisit Roe and Casey. And in his opinion, they should. All that would have meant is once they said a 15-week ban is okay, um, you would have gotten a 12, and then you would have gotten a 10, and you would have just had successive cases over time working to address how far back you can scale this. Uh, In a way, what the court did here is to just rip the Band-Aid off of where I think this was. Uh, Now I think we kind of feel inevitably headed. Um, that you know the current construction of the court, if they had gone with Roberts' narrower opinion, then they would have been in uh, a position where they would have to continue to address, well, how far back can you scale this? And they did what I think is the right thing, uh, which is Sam pointed out that this was always on very constitutional shaky ground. And that was recognized by a lot of people, even those who are in favor of abortion access. But what Sam said at the beginning, a little uh, glibly, but I think it's true, about, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about this already. What is interesting to me, not surprising, but nonetheless interesting, is that almost no one is talking about what the court actually said. Almost all of the conversation is geared towards what people's desired abortion regime for the country is. I think you saw this as well in the remarks that President Joe Biden gave where it has to be pointed out that something he said, literally the opposite was true. And I mean literally as in literally, not how Joe Biden means literally, which is figuratively, that this makes us an outlier country. No, it does not. Go look at uh, the point at which abortion is restricted throughout most of Europe. You're talking somewhere between you know, 10 to 15 weeks. Roe and the regime that resulted from it made America an outlier around the world. But the fact that so much of the conversation is about – the policy implications of this and not what the court's holding actually was, I think really gives away the truth here, which is that Roe, when it was decided, took something that was working its way through the democratic process in the individual states. The court snatched it away from that process and we have had 50 years of – incoherence legally and of battles of a different sort over this issue. And what is going to be interesting for me to observe going forward, and this is my – I expressed this once already on this program. I'm going to express it again. I'm going to be the hopeful one here that one of the malfunctioning institutions in society has been legislatures. Certainly it's true of Congress, but state legislatures are not immune from that critique that you've all live in critique I make all the time as well. Now state legislatures are going to be compelled to act. There are a lot of states that had trigger laws. Um, some of those states may not actually want those trigger laws to trigger and the legislature then would need to address 
that. And what I imagine is going to happen over time is that you're going to evolve, and this is, again, the way it should be, to a essentially where the American people are on the question of abortion. When people said that they didn't want Roe to be overturned, it was largely because they just didn't want to think about the issue. And now that they're going to have to think about it, where most people are, now regardless of what we would say is um, you know, in coherence with the idea of the human person, where most people are on this is uh, they're generally okay with it in the first 12 weeks. They want it much more limited in the second 12 weeks of the pregnancy, and they pretty much want it to be illegal in the final 12 weeks. And I think we're going to see an evolution legislatively over time to pretty much that position. I think you're absolutely right on with this, Eric. And I think it's important – you know, the abortion conversation is something that has been – a very abstract debate in this country for a very long time because this sort of legislative grappling has been made impossible by the position of the court. And what you see in Dobbs is I think a decision that is primarily about the rule of law addressing the particular issue of abortion. And uh, that has, of course, um, you know, consequences that affects abortion policy in any number of states that have trigger laws or states like Michigan that have old laws that have not been revisited in Michigan's case since 1931. Um, And what you have here is a fresh start, a way for us to reboot those conversations, to bring them down to actual conversations about governance. Um, Justice Alito, in his majority opinion, was very, very explicit in saying this does not establish, this opinion does not establish when life begins. This establishes the very limited claim that abortion is not and has never been a constitutional right. Um, This does not say what abortion policy should be other than that that policy debate can now happen. I think that that is a very good point. That is exactly what I'm saying with the way that the court snatched this away from the democratic process. We we are now going to have – people talk about like the political debates we've had over abortion for the last 50 years. We really haven't because there's only been one question. Should Roe stay or should Roe go? And it is going to be also very interesting to observe both uh, politicians on the left and on the right at a federal and more importantly at a state level. They do not have an out clause now. They do not have a simple answer on this where you could say, I support the nomination of justices that would overturn Roe. I support the nomination of justices that would uh, uphold Roe. Now you actually, again, have to have a conversation about what a policy regime should look like. So in a way, if we can move people past the histrionics that they are in over this, that I think is primarily due to their own misunderstanding and a forgivable misunderstanding of what the court has actually done here. 
not a lot of people intimately follow what the court says and does. They are looking only at the impact of the decision on American life. For people who aren't weird like the three of us are and follow this stuff very closely, that's normal. It is very normal and very understandable. But now if we can move people beyond some of the histrionics, we can actually have a conversation about this issue through the political process and hopefully see the will of the people in some way better represented by what happens as a result of all of that. You, you mentioned the will of the people. <clears throat> that, of course, is the basis of a constitutional republic, right, like the United States. But one thing I've found interesting, I'm, I'm sure both uh, you and Dan also noticed this, was that much of the reaction to the Dobbs decision indicated to me that there are large numbers of Americans who believe that courts of all levels in a constitutional republic like the United States, there are many Americans who believe that courts should simply reflect whatever happens to be the latest opinion poll on any given issue. There are many people who actually say this. So you saw with much of the, the commentary following Dobbs was, well, this is the, these are the views of the American people on this particular subject. The court is going against this. And for that reason, this decision must be seen as fundamentally illegitimate. The problem, of course, is that one of the defining characteristics of a constitutional republic is that courts and the judiciary are not there to reflect whatever happens to be the latest opinion poll, which may well, of course, as we know, be contradicted by a completely different opinion poll on the same issue, which just happens to be worded in a different way. So my, I guess my, what I'm saying is my broader concern is that the Dobbs decision and the reaction to it across the political spectrum indicated to me that there are large numbers of Americans who don't understand what the proper role of the judiciary is in a constitutional republic, or they don't want to acknowledge what is the proper role of the judiciary in a constitutional republic, because they want a judiciary to address decisions that are much more properly, as you've been pointing out, the responsibility of legislatures, whether it's at the federal level or at the state level. So that tells us something, I think, about the health of the Republic and Americans' understanding of what the Constitution is and the way that constitutionalism works in a type of Republic like the United States. So I think that's going to be something that should be on a lot of people's minds. If you care about freedom and you care about justice and the way that these are properly understood, particularly through the medium of, say, something like the American founding, then you should be concerned that there are lots of people out there who think that the judiciary should just do whatever a majority of people indicate should be done vis-a-vis uh, -vis different opinion polls or other ways of trying to gauge public opinion. This really does, I think, lay bare the deficit in civics education that we have in this country, that people do not understand even the old uh, schoolhouse rock version of American civics. 
And, you know, we can chuckle about that now because if you watch like the the section on uh, how a bill becomes a law, um, it's not really representative of how a bill becomes a law. There's no mention of lobbyists in there whatsoever, right? There's uh, there's no mention of the way that the writing of bills is not done by uh, legislators. It's farmed out to um, a whole bunch of organizations and the staff members of those organizations. But at least the minimal under- civics understanding that came with Schoolhouse Rock, that the House is different from the Senate and is different from the court. Set aside even the executive branch for a moment here. But you see these similar complaints too. What is bizarre in the way that this gets all twisted up to me is on one hand, from a lot of people who are freaking out about Dobbs, you have this fetishization of democracy. Democracy is in peril. Democracy dies in darkness. What the court did here is return to the democratic process a very important issue that had been snatched from it. But you also get these complaints that the Senate is not democratic. Yeah. That's the design of the Senate. The court doesn't represent the will of the people. Yeah, that's not the design of what the court is actually supposed to do. We have done a very poor job of teaching people why this system of government is designed the way that it is. I think we are in a way reaping the uh, the terrible results of that right now. And I want to point out as well just another example of how so bizarrely scrambled our way of talking about these things is at the moment, uh, and I think largely produced by the last couple of years that we just lived through. I thought about over the weekend this – one of the best things that Saturday Night Live has produced in years, which was this game show from I think about less than a year ago called Republican or Not, where they brought out somebody and had them make these statements and the two people had to guess whether or not they were a Republican. And one of them was – my body, my choice. And one of the contestants says, are they talking about abor- abortion or vaccines? And it has gotten bizarrely scrambled that you're hearing, as you would typically expect from the left, the my body, my choice refrain with just no recognition that a lot of the same people were making arguments against that position when it came to vaccination over the last year. It, it is interesting how it has scrambled things up. But again, what I'm hopeful about is that being forced back into the legislative process maybe engenders some great relearning of how our system of government works. But maybe I'm being too hopeful. I think it also can cause us to have a conversation about rights. Because the next phase of this debate is, you know, the pro-life movement has always articulated a conception of natural rights, that there is a right to life, and that this right begins at conception. Folks in the pro-choice movement have, uh, you know, in opposition to that articulation, focused in the main on very difficult cases, Hard cases. And, yep, hard cases. And in the crafting of legislation, those hard cases need to be addressed. There is not a simple answer, even when we talk about rights, because rights, there are many rights, and sometimes they come into conflict. And there are ways that we have to adjudicate that through the political process. So what I'm hoping for is that this drives the 
best instincts in both movements and that somehow through the clash, which will generate more heat than light and will for some time, that we can seriously consider these arguments, these competing claims, and come to some recognition that both there is a right to life and that right is, of course, like any other right, subject to adjudication when it comes into conflict with other rights. And that hopefully we have a a, a legislative regime that emerges out of this that most Americans, even if they're not enthusiastic about, can live with and claim as their own because they were part of the political process that delineated it. Of course, what we see in much of America and you see this across the political spectrum, I might add, there's a tendency to use the language of rights as a way of essentially ending discussion. It's a way of shutting down discussion. I have a right, so therefore there's no further discussion of this issue. The government or whoever simply just has to acknowledge this and give me the things that are associated with recognition of that right. And there is, of course, a long history of rights, the idea of rights, in the American political experiment. But one of the things I hope that uh, emerges from this is that if we're going to have a deeper conversation about rights and the way that they work in the American political and constitutional framework, that there may be some recognition that certainly when the founding talks about this, and the deeper Western tradition talks about the idea of rights, it's intimately tied to the idea of natural law. And that's very apparent in the founding when you see this language of natural rights. There's this working assumption that's tied to the, to the idea of natural law, which is really important because it means that rights are not just whatever people want them to be. They're not a reflection of subjective majority preference at any one point in time. They're grounded in some truths about the nature of human reason and the human person that are, more, that are objectively true and apply in all times and places. And Dan is right. Uh, many of these things still need to be mediated in terms of how constitutional law and positive law more generally deals with these questions of what is a right, what is not a right, and how do different rights relate to each other, particularly when there are conflicts. But I do think that natural law is actually a way of having that discussion that, re- in a way that remains committed to the principle that these things are not just made up, that these things are not the creation of lawyers or courts that what lawyers and courts and politicians and legislators do is simply recognize these things and then deal with the hard work of how these things are actually cashed out in the body politic. I'll be the marketing guy for a moment here. There's a reason why so much conversation in American life is based in rights, and conversation about rights because it is an incredibly powerful concept in the American experience. And if you can establish the idea in people's minds that you have a right to something, not just that you have a privilege to do something, which is why people talk about the right to vote. 
it really isn't a right to vote. It, this is not something that you're going to find in the Constitution. And certainly at the founding of this country, not everybody had a right to vote. Um, they didn't have a privilege to vote. But we we constitute it in the conversations we have in these this idea of rights because it is incredibly powerful. Going back to what, Dan, you were saying, I think this also reveals to me one of the problems in the philosophical thinking of the left, not for everyone but for a good number of people on the left, which seems to be this implicit notion that all good things go together, that you don't have to have one thing come at the expense of something else, that there's a, a, kind of a philosophical repudiation of the idea of oppor- intellectual opportunity costs, um, that this is a reality though and it's one of the reasons that I think there's a very – there's a richness in conservative thinking and the history of conservative thinking is this idea that things can be intention, that you can have rights that are intention, that you can have values that are intention and that you have to make prudential judgments about those and how – where to come down on them. You, know, you see this in – it is a point that is made and that is correct insofar as it goes from President Biden that you know, no right is unlimited. Yeah. You know, there was also a major gun case that came out uh, last week where one of the indications is you – know, the, the case in, in short is that New York had a May issue for concealed carry um, so that you – Basically, after you've completed the objective criteria, you just hand it off to a number of people to decide whether or not they think they're going to give you the right to, a con- to conceal carry. And the, uh, the, the, one of the problems with that, uh, that view on it is it creates this burden on individuals without any clear rules for how to adjudicate it. But you have an indication from the court – that states could put a whole bunch of very burdensome, clear criteria on it rather than having this kind of star chamber version of May issue. So you can have limitations on rights. You may not like the limitations that exist and it's going to vary between states when it comes to gun control. But these things can be intention. They are often intention and it is the hard work of us as a society to figure out the balance that we strike there. But I think that is a repeated error often that I hear in arguments from the left that you can have all good things together, that you don't have to have it tainted by the fact that things might be in conflict with the reality just is sometimes they are. I think you have this on the right as well. And I think you see this. We had discussed uh, some months ago the particular sort of uh, Texas abortion law involving um, granting people standing to file civil suits against abortion providers. This was a law that was designed to work around the old the prior legal consensus under Roe and under Casey. And a lot of uh, pro-choice folks were very up in arms about this because, you know, this granted standing to even people outside of the state of Texas to bring such suits. And I think that one of the things that the pro-life community is going to need to deeply reflect on is now that this process can begin – there is a responsibility to legislate responsibly. 
and that just that uh, sort of an an impetus to sort of restrict abortion by any means necessary does not further sort of mutual dialogue and respect among citizens, and it does not serve the rule of law in the claims of justice as well. So I think, you know, there are, there are ways of going about this. And again, the, much of the rest of the world is a model for some of these, some of these precedents. But the right and the, and the pro-life movement in particular is going to have to learn to work through these tensions in a way when the debate was simply abstract, it hadn't before. And there are many great pro-life thinkers who have thought through these issues, but that deliberative process is going to have to – those reflections are going to have to filter them their way down into the thinking of legislators themselves that are often not the best representatives of the positions that they hold. I think you are going to see uh, what some people uh, fear who have reacted uh, very negatively to the court's opinion in Dobbs is that there is going to be very bad legislation that is put forward and possibly even passed into law. And this is, again, where the court comes in and these things will be challenged. Uh, This is what the legislative process looks like. It is not always pretty. And there are certainly plenty of bad legislative ideas on offer from all corners of political thought. Uh, This is not going to be something unique to people who are on the right and now offering legislation on how and how much to restrict abortion. What's interesting about this is that this will pose uh, dilemmas for, for example, pro-life people who are very committed to a culture of life and who want to see abortion uh, completely, uh, more or less completely banned or restricted. Uh, And the dilemma, of course, is this, that they're unlikely in most state jurisdictions, most state legislatures, to find themselves in a situation where they're going to be able to get everything they want on this particular issue because they're unlikely to get uh, a sufficient majority in any given legislature that's in favour of something like a complete ban, right? So this presents the, the interesting question of to what extent can they um, support legislation that certainly doesn't uh, give them everything they want, but certainly does reduce, um, result in a significant reduction of the scope of the abortion license. And this is an issue which um, is very directly spoken about in uh, John Paul II's uh, encyclical Evangelium Vitae, where the encyclical talks about precisely these types of situations whereby pro-life legislators are faced with a situation where they're either trying to restrict an expansion of the abortion license or working to restrict um, an existing abortion license. And the extent to which they can go along with compromises that leave some type of uh, abortion uh, access legally available. And in the encyclical talks very, very well about this particular subject, but this is a good example of the type of question that so many legislators are now going to have to grapple with because much of this comes down 
to prudence, right? Now, prudence is not is not the position whereby you accept moral or you embrace moral evil in order that you that you get some good out of it, right? That one of the basic principles of natural law is you may not do evil that good may come of it. But there's going to be some very difficult questions that pro-life legislators are going to have to address when it comes to what they can actually get out of the legislative process and how far that can be reconciled with uh, the principles that they're bringing to the legislative process. Now, that's the nature of democracy, right? And it's not just with this this issue, it's with all sorts of different issues where it's very rare that you get everything you want in the legislative process. But I think we're going to see uh, a renewal of debate among pro-life people who think about these types of issues from this type of perspective about what's morally acceptable and what's not morally acceptable. I think this is a good segue into the one concurring opinion from the court that we have not really discussed yet. As I mentioned, Justice Alito, and I think we should note this, and I want to come back very briefly in the future uh, here to the leak. Um, There is very little difference between the opinion that was leaked a couple months ago and the opinion that Justice Alito issued in the Dobbs decision. There were, as I mentioned, there was a concurrence from Chief Justice Roberts that basically said uh, we don't have to decide anything on Roe and Casey themselves in order to find in favor of Mississippi. I think I already made clear why I think that that was uh, probably just not a very good way to approach this. Uh, And there was also the concurring opinion from Justice Kavanaugh that, as I said, and I heard one person give the analogy that it's basically um, it's his moment of that scene from the Tom Hanks movie Captain Phillips where he says, you know, look at me, look at me. I'm the captain now. Um, He is the justice that is going to be a lot of arguments are going to be made to in the future. And I think he's signaling that pretty clearly. The other one we haven't discussed yet is from Clarence Thomas, which is drawing a lot of attention. And is going to be, if I go back to my political consultant days, the one you would make the ads around. Because in his concurrence, he writes that in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Because any substantive due process decision is, quote, demonstrably erroneous, we have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Thomas is not a fan of the concept of substantive due process at all. All of those cases were decided on substantive due process grounds and a refresher for anyone who doesn't recognize them. Uh, Griswold v. Connecticut is what struck down prohibitions on contraception. Lawrence v. Texas is what struck down prohibitions on uh, prohibitions on sodomy. And Obergefell, of course, is the gay marriage case. Uh, One thing I think to be very clear on here, uh, people have pointed out that Loving v. Virginia is not included and are making the insinuation that Thomas leaves this out because uh, he is a black man who is married to a white woman. And, oh, he's not mentioning the case that would personally affect him. Uh, Go back and read Loving. Uh, There is mention of substantive due process in that decision. It is primarily uh, and foremost based on equal protection grounds. There's a reason to not have it included there. But the point I want to make, too, coming back to the legislative stuff that we have been talking about is let's say that something that happens that I don't think would happen, which is that if 
you know, if you're somebody who's concerned about the striking down now of Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell, A, that there isn't a jurisprudential way to reach the same decision without being on substantive due process grounds, which, uh, like it or not, there probably is a way that the court could arrive at that. But on a legislative point, again, let's just assume these are all overturned. How many states do you think are actually going to move to criminalize any of this at this point? There has been a cultural change on these issues. Again, like it or not, I do not think you're going to see movement in that direction. So the – again, people who are wanting to willfully misconstrue what Thomas is saying here, just because he's saying that – you know, again, Thomas would, I'm sure, believe that you cannot reach the holdings in Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell on any grounds. Um, But one – the court would likely find a way to reach them on different grounds, probably equal protection grounds. And two, even if they are overturned, the question is – I understand why people may not be comfortable in this. Not a huge legislative desire out there to act to prohibit any of the three things that were uh, – the previous prohibitions were struck down in Griswold, Lawrence and Obergefell. Well, one thing on this, Eric, I think it's worth briefly saying is I think that my sense is – What Justice Thomas is doing here is he's playing a long game. He's laying down a marker. He's pointing to the fact that what all those things that you just talked about in terms of Griswold versus Connecticut, et cetera, they were reflective of the way – let's call it the the jurisprudence, the legal philosophy that was very prevalent at the Supreme Court – in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And I think Justice Thomas's point is that he questions the legitimacy of that whole way of thinking. And it fits in with his broader position, which is that uh, the court should not be getting itself involved in all sorts of things, which the court has involved itself in, as you say, on the on the grounds of due a due due substantive process, so I think that's part of what's going on here. And as you're, I think you're right that I don't think legislatures are going to be passing laws banning uh, contraception uh, in terms of the same-sex marriage issue. Uh, I, I there may be some states that would uh, address that question. Some would simply revert back to what was on the books, con- even constitutionally. Uh, before uh, the Supreme Court ruling on that particular subject. But I think this is he's, he is taking a sort of longer-term view and he's really challenging here the way that activist courts have worked in much of America since the late 1960s. And he's trying to you know, alert people to that. I'm sure he didn't expect many people to sign on to that – on the court to that particular opinion – but I think that's what he's doing because I think that's what a lot of these these um, these additional comments that judges make, so SCOTUS judges make on any given case, that's generally part of what they're trying to do. You know, the other thing which we – I don't know if we'll talk about this at some point – is the other, the other decision, right, which was the dissenting decision on, yeah. on Dobbs. And the only thing I will say about that is that it was extremely – intellectually weak. I've even uh, read some uh, pro-choice legal uh, scholars say the same thing, that they thought it was extremely weak because in the end what it came down to was 
this has been the pre- precedent since 1973. Uh, we shouldn't really be messing with this because there's more or less 50 years of thought or, or judicial precedent about this particular subject, which is okay, fine, that's true, but that's not the strongest of arguments that you should that I that one would think that they would be making, which I think goes to show the point that we mentioned right at the beginning, that the constitutional foundations of Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey were always extremely fragile. Real quick before Dan jumps in, just two quick points. Um, one for those, Sam's point about Obergefell, that you may find state legislators, uh, legislatures that would want to move to uh, ban same-sex marriage if Obergefell were struck down. Um, the star, I just want to make the point that the stare decisis argument in favor of upholding Obergefell, even if you know you agree entirely with Thomas on the uh, substantive due process uh, being problematic, is there's a lot of reliance on Obergefell right now in terms of marriage contracts that exist and that are recognized by the state. Um, so I think that you have a much stronger stare decisis argument in favor of upholding Obergefell. Again, I, I'm not making judgments on any of this. I'm just stating what I think the legal analysis is and take that for what you want because I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on a podcast. Um, I'm just a marketing hack who has a few thoughts. Um, so take that for what you will. And also on Griswold, it is worth pointing out uh, the reality of the history of Griswold, that Griswold was a stalking horse case for Roe, which came after it, and that there was not a state at the time Griswold was decided that was actively prohibiting uh, contraception from being purchased. It may have been on the books, like a lot of bizarre laws that are on the books that like you can't slurp your soup on a Wednesday in Boston. That's a law, I think, roughly that is on the books. There are a lot of goofy things that are still on the books that are not enforced. Um, That Griswold was a stalking horse for all that. So again, even at the time it was decided, you were not having prohibitions on the purchase of contraception. I think that's worth recognizing. One of the striking things about the dissent, and Sam, Sam pointed it out, you know, there's an appeal to the history of the last 50 years. There is no appeal to the history before Ziggy Stardust. And that's very striking when the majority opinion very much hinges on a historical reading that says that there's no precedent for abortion rights in the legal tradition prior to Roe that establishes a positive right to abortion. Including the common law, one might add. They made that point several times. There's nothing in the common law tradition, which goes way back, as we understand, in the United States and in, and in British jurisprudence. There's nothing in there, in there prior to 1973 that supports what was deemed to be a right to abortion. And we have precedent in the United States for rulings that we now recognize as being error that have similar precedents in terms of the sort of 50-year time span. We think of uh, Plessy v. v. Ferguson and we think of the sort of separate but equal sort of arguments that were made and upheld by the court for decades before they remained uh, before they were challenged uh, in Brown v Board. So there is there is a precedent for courts adjudicating these things wrongly for a very long time. There is very little precedent for 
legal traditions and constitutional law that have no basis in history at all. A couple of things I want to touch on before we wrap up the program. Uh, The first is the leak, the leak of the draft opinion from Justice Alito, which, as I mentioned, uh, is almost unchanged in the opinion that has actually been issued by the court, Justice Alito's final version of that. Is this just one of the all-time failed gambits by whoever did this? Because if the intention was to try to push one of the justices who might have been on the fence about uh, signing on to Alito's opinion, at least into the Roberts camp, of we don't, you know, there wouldn't be, a, try to get one or two in there, you wouldn't be have enough people to overturn Roe and Casey and you're making a more narrow holding. Certainly that didn't happen. I don't think the logic of that made any sense because you knew when the Alito opinion was leaked who those justices were and you would know who had defected if someone then were to defect. And the other thing too that I think is amazing is it took so much of the air out of the balloon when the leaked opinion came out. That when Dobbs actually came out on Friday, it was a far more muted reaction than it otherwise would have been if that were the first time that we were hearing, oh, my goodness, the court has actually overturned Roe and Casey. Is this just one of the most failed gambits of all time? Well, I think that I don't know. We don't know, I guess, until we won't know until we discover who leaked that draft opinion. And we may never know. Right, correct. But politically, uh, what, which is what you're really pointing to, the the political dimension of this is I think that if they were trying to get the court to shift its position, uh, that didn't happen, which is good. I mean, whatever you think about the decision, uh, I think it's rather good that that judges are not intimidated because that was at least, I think, part of the objective. But the second thing is that I think you're right. It did take the 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 wind out of the sails of this. So people had a sense that this was coming. And so when it came out, the reaction, at least in terms of the world outside Twitter, I think was considerably muted. I was in Santa Fe over the weekend and uh, I was sitting at a table um, in a restaurant at one point and just listening to the conversation around me. Santa Fe is one of the most liberal cities in the entire United States. I heard no one talking about this decision around me. So politically, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out in terms of the November elections, because no doubt um, uh, significant segments, if not all the Democratic Party, will uh, seek to use this, if not for fundraising, or certainly for fundraising, right, but also to try and uh, shift the dynamics against uh, the other side, so to speak, in the congressional and Senate elections. But whether it will actually have the purchase on how people are thinking about the elections, I think, is very much open to question. I It may have some effect, maybe in blue cities, in blue states, but uh, that's not going to shift elections where the uh, the margin for error is much smaller. I think it's very hard to discern the motivations of the league, because as you've described the way that it actually played out, in terms of softening the reaction. It could have very well been someone who leaked, who desired just such a thing. Right. To either soften the reaction 
or to motivate to lock the court's deliberation in where they were at the time of the draft. Because I think Sam is very right. If the court had substantially changed the opinion, this would set a dangerous precedent and incentivize future leaks of clerks of all sorts of ideological backgrounds that would seek, or even justices themselves, that would seek to uh, manipulate the court in this way. So um, our, our, our speculations are just that, but there's, I, I think you can make compelling arguments for, for different sets of motivations uh, for the leak. The last topic I want to touch on is, uh, in a way, it reminds me of the famous uh, joke about the New York, New York Times headline being world to end tomorrow, women and minorities hardest hit. Uh, <laughs> is there anyone who was hit harder, <clears throat> in a sense, by this than the burgeoning common good cons- uh, constitutionalism philosophy? Because a whole central part of the argument for why this should be a thing had less – always to me rested far less on its own rationale that this is a meaningful philosophy, that it is steeped in some kind of a tradition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And instead it rested primarily on a, you know, a version of the what has conservatism conserved – what has getting finally all of these uh, supposed originalists, textualists, Federalist Society approved judges on the court actually given us? It was in a lot of ways relying on the idea that the court would end up essentially with the Roberts concurrence being the majority opinion and having that as something that you could point to and say, see, what do you get from doing it in the proper way? What do you get from doing it in the process, the way that we're told we're supposed to? You don't get anything. So I, as somebody who is not a big fan of this philosophy or of its proponents, I am delighted, not just because I think the court's opinion here was correct, but because it really delivers a gut punch to the rationale for why one should adopt this common good constitutionalism philosophy. Well, one thing to say, of course, is that I think the <clears throat> one of the headlines in National Review was that the Dobbs case is – was it described the Dobbs case in the Supreme Court's decision as the greatest victory of the conservative movement ever. And I think that's an accurate statement in terms of it's very rare that Supreme Courts reverse themselves on an issue – on any given issue, right? Uh, and this has certainly happened in this case and it's a case that has concerned a question – that has been a point of unity, I would say, uh, across the conservative movement for some period of time, which raises the question about what would, what, what, how would common good constitutionalism, what, what type of result would it have come up with? And it also shows that uh, there's, there's a case to be made for securing particular goals via the processes that exist under the constitutional framework of the United States as it is informed by the American founding and the American experiment in ordered liberty. 
So my guess, and I think we've already seen intimations of this, is that uh, many of the people who describe themselves as common good constitutionalists or, or, or some sort of iteration of that, they're already starting to shift a lot of their attention to the court's decisions on economic topics, right, in which they're basically arguing that the court and institutions like the Federalist Society have basically worked very hard over the past 50 years to promote the interests of big business, corporate America, uh, free market ideas, et cetera, et cetera. So they're already starting to shift, I think, some of the locus of their attack. And in some cases, in some of the people who have been articulating this, they've been studiously avoiding discussion of abortion and questions of human life uh, in the context of these particular discussions, particular interviews you can find in the New York Times or particular articles that have been penned by some of these individuals in similar publications. It's interesting they're shifting the focus of the discussion away from the life question because since the leak it was very clear that this was the direction the court was moving uh, and they're shifting their attention to questions which uh, preoccupy them for different reasons. Part of the lesson of this, part of the lesson of any sort of 50-year precedent that's overturned is that that takes a lot of work to do. That takes a lot of organization. That takes a lot of investment in ideas um, and that any sort of change in society, particularly institutional change, is, is very slow. And I think a lot of the folks um, who are frustrated with that, among them the common good constitutionalists, think that if merely you reached out and grabbed it, that what we primarily have is a failure of will – I think that that is a mistake and I think that misunderstands fundamentally how long-term enduring institutional change happens. And I think it appeals to people's frustrations and resentments and uh, I think this is an important case for diffusing some of that. There are a lot of people on the Twitter right, if maybe not in, in American public life at large. But there are a lot of people frustrated on the left and the right with the legislative process, with our institutions, with um, American democracy. And um, I think any time that you can restore people's faith in that, and bring them back to a deliberative process, I think that makes for a more healthy society um, and less of these sort of animating resentments. And I hope this encourages particularly young people to become involved, to become committed to institutions, to long-term social change, and to sort of a recognition that um, this is a process and we are a society together and that we need to move forward together. And that involves making arguments. That involves persuasion. That involves investing 
time and energy over projects over the long haul for those to truly bear fruit. Let's call it a wrap there. I mentioned at the top of this program that this week I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research for Now. And then I promised I would come back and explain what I meant by that. And what I meant by that is uh, Sam Gregg has accepted a new appointment as the Distinguished Fellow in Political Economy and a Senior Research Faculty Member at the American Institute for Economic Research. And as such, this is his last week as the Director of Research here at the Acton Institute after Sam was a 21 years? Did I have that correct? 21 years, indeed. 21 years. So uh, Sam, on one hand, of course, is going to be deeply missed by those of us who work here at the Acton Institute, uh, but he will not be a stranger. He will continue to be involved with Acton, lecture at Acton University, and for other purposes. You may even see him back on this podcast, not as a part of the normal panel configuration that we have here, as next week we'll be coming at you with a new panel configuration, but as the uh, David Bonson-esque guest that we may have on this program occasionally, uh, we certainly look forward to that and wish him all the best on his future uh, in that role at the American Institute for Economic Research. And to that, Sam, I will give you the last word here. Well, thank you very much, Eric. It's um it's, of course, with some sadness that I'm uh, leaving Acton. Uh, 20 years I've been uh, working at Acton. It's been uh, quite a ride. It's been a great pleasure to work in pursuing the goals of the Institute. It's also been a great pleasure to work with people like you uh, and Dan and all the other employees at Acton. Uh, and, of course, its president, Chris Maurin, and it's uh, uh, now retired President Father uh, Robert Sirico in furthering the mission of a free and virtuous society. I very much believe in free markets and limited government. I don't think there's any secret to anyone. Uh, but I also believe that the framework and the cultural framework, uh, be it political, moral, judicial, etc., in which that society, that economy exists is, is equally important. And the Acton Institute is one of the few institutions that are actively talking about that side of things and to, to the extent that I've been able to contribute to that mission, I've been very grateful. And I look forward to uh, being involved as an affiliate scholar with Acton, uh, lecturing at different events, uh, participating in things like this. So it's not a complete goodbye, it's a change. Uh, but I just want to say that the, the Acton Institute's mission is more important than ever and I have uh, uh, every confidence that it will continue to grow in its importance over time. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, again, please look in the show notes where you're going to find a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.